0: The Mets have a toxic clubhouse, and Pete Alonso is part of that. They're not getting rid of Lindor, nor should they. I mean, Lindor's the guy. He's been here for you know a few years. He's learned from the failures of year one, and he's got the huge contract. He's not going anywhere. We know the talent on this team. We know the talent that they had. Why did they fail so miserably? It's because you have a bunch of selfish individuals not playing as a team. And unfortunately, Alonzo is part of that. He's part of this core. So yes, he produces. Yes, he hits a ton of home runs. Big part of it. Homegrown, all that stuff. But ultimately, the Mets are going to have to make a decision here. Because if they want to get to where they want to be, the core of this team, the culture, it needs to change. So um, these two guys basically came here and they felt the toxicity of the fan base when things go bad. Uh, yeah, but right? that's what I'm talking about. Well, I know. And, and and both of them basically said that it would have liked to have been better in better spots. And, you know, it was all of us and whatever. But the point being is that there is a toxicity that is ingrained into us as fans around here, whether we're Nick fans, Ranger fans, Islander fans, Devil fans, you know, whatever yeah. we are. Yep. Uh, we have like this this pessimistic view on things. And when things start to turn. Then all of a sudden it gets louder and, louder and louder and louder and louder, and I, you know, that's what happened with the Mets. That's the toxicity that I was talking about. And I'm sure when Justin Verlander went back to Houston, he was like, "Thank God, of Here course man, I'm back!" And there's like course. a conquering hero going back there. And Scherzer is for the, the Rangers. You know, he's like the the new thing that the Rangers did, and they needed. And next year they'll have hopefully they'll have Degrom back, and they'll have Scherzer in that in that uh, rotation, and they might win a World Series this year. They could without Degrom, year. which is really interesting. So. But you just, I just hope that that toxicity that does surround all these teams around here, because of the losing, you have to be a special person to deal with that and to overcome that. Um, I would like to think that Daniel Jones has been through it, and he's, out, he's overcome it because of the coach that they finally brought in that got the best out of him. I'd like to think that Aaron Rodgers is above all of that because there was probably some toxicity around him because of all the – Machinations that were going on up in Green Bay over the last three to four years, and all the differences of opinions that he may have had with the front office. Hopefully, he'll be able to handle all of that if it turns sideways. If they get off to a one and three start. It'll be a mess. All of this of stuff course. that we feel right now. Yeah. It's going to go but they're right not, out the They're going to be 4 0. You know quarter. why I say that? I know firsthand.
2: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, August the 13th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram. Talking Mets No G, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sighted Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. When I told you guys last week there are times when your team is out of the pennant race, that you have those moments when you could not feel further away from a championship or from credible, meaningful baseball. Yesterday at City Field, that doubleheader, those are one of those moments. I mean... Those are rough games. I mean anybody who anybody who went to those games and wants to send me an email, Mike Silvat, no G, let me know how it was, because that's rough. I mean, you could you could go and get the food and still have a good time, but from a baseball perspective, that's rough. What is it? Uh 34 to 3? Was it uh, no, 21 to 3 and you know, 27 to 3 in a double header? It doesn't get much worse than that. Look, doesn't matter if it's 27 to 3 or double one nothing shutouts, so a loss is a loss. And the Mets are in a position where the roster today is not the roster tomorrow. So away we go. Now, it as I said, not easy to do shows when the team is out of the pennant race. But this is New York. This is the Talking Mets podcast. The Mets may be bad. We're not going to be bad. We're not tanking for a number six pick. We're not you know, putting the tents down and waiting until the offseason. We're going to do the best we can do here. But a lot to talk about. We're going to get in, and you heard the comments on the way in. Sal Licata, Boomer Sison, WFAN. I know I criticized them, but I think the topic is important. Toxic Clubhouse, Toxic fan base. We'll get into that. Uh, Brett Beatty was sent down. You know, something that I thought about talking about before this week. I wanted to get into it last week, but we had other things to talk about. Right move. Will we see him again? Hmm. I got to tell you. Brett Beatty's got a lot to prove. And there was some very disturbing comments in a New York Post article. We'll get into that. And then there was non-Mets related news. We'll round up the show with that. The Orioles suspending their broadcaster for stating the facts. What kind of media world are we in? We're in the 2023 media world. And I'm going to give you on the way out some of my thoughts because, although it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard and seen, I think you're going to start to see media for Team Shift in a way that you're not going to like. But in a lot of ways, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because of the behavior and the product and a lot of things we talk about here on the front end of the Talking Mets podcast. So, okay, let's start out. Do the Mets have a toxic clubhouse? You heard Salicata. This created a big stir. You know, Brandon Tierney at WFAN jumps in. And then you heard, I had a clip about Boomer and talking about toxic fan bases, which Boomer, a former New York athlete, would know a thing or two about that. And, you know, this is coming on the heels of our show last week, the baseball malaise. And are we headed to with the Mets and the Yankees this early 1990s redux where baseball takes a big backseat and we focus on hockey and football and the NBA? You know, I'm not sure I'm ready to say that. But I'll start off by saying this. And I warned everybody about this when the deadline came and things were starting to get ripped apart that it was going to be really hard at least through the rest of the regular season and into the postseason when the Mets are not in it, to be a Mets fan. The media was going to use it as a pulpit to really bash on this club. And I'll tell you the truth, it's actually not as bad as it was in other seasons where the Mets were closer to the playoffs under Wilpon ownership because I think in the back of the head of many of these members of the media, they know the owner spends money and they're going to be careful about how far they go. But, I mean, when I wake up this morning and... You know, there's an article in, in a major publication interviewing the fans who are basically going to the game with a paper bag on their head. Well, you know, that kind of tells you where we're at. I mean, that's not, for me personally, that's not analysis I'm interested in. And I know what you guys were saying. I saw the comments on Twitter. Well, Mike, you know, now everybody's like you that wants to look into the farm system and wants to look into this thing deeper. And you're right. You're 100% right. But I am disappointed that our mainstream media outlets are sounding more and more like the old school WFN callers. They, you know, the 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 whole relationship has switched where I feel like the mainstream media outlets are the children in the room and the adults are people like me and others that do what we're doing here. So that's just my commentary. Maybe it's a pat on the back. Maybe I'm wrong. But when you hear a WFN host who has not spent any time in the clubhouse, granted he works for SMY, talk about a toxic clubhouse and basically connecting, trading Pete Alonso to that, which I I didn't hear the, all I have is the clip that you guys heard. I didn't hear the whole context of the conversation, but that's what WFAM put out there. So that's what they wanted you to hear. I don't exactly know how, and I'll start there, that a first baseman driving in runs, hitting home runs, playing as good a defense as he possibly can, is toxic to any organization. Because I'll tell you what, Maybe they trade Pete Alonso. I did a show about that. There's an actual argument to be made about trading Pete Alonso. You know, maybe the Mets have a Herschel Walker type and anybody who's I'm dating myself by by saying that a Herschel Walker type haul that they can get for Alonso with some pitching, maybe. You know, you got to consider it. But there are 29 other teams that would probably consider Pete Alonso in some way shape or form, including the team across town. Who would love to have Pete Alonso at first base over Anthony Rizzo. And they'll take all whatever the toxicity that Alonzo is. You know, and look, I get it. Alonso's a bit of a goofball. Sometimes he comes across frat boyish, you know, the home run derby. You know, he enjoys being Pete Alonso. He enjoys the perks of the trade, he enjoys the camera. But nobody could ever say a guy like that that's worked hard, has worked to improve himself. Uh, you know, maybe he's taken a step back offensively. Is that selfishness or toxicity? No. You know, I think what you heard and I think the real issue that's coming to a head is something that we've talked about on this show and we've talked about for years. And I've been criticized for it and people laugh at it. And, you know, I, I, I hate to say that I'm going to repeat it again, but I am. But when we when we did a poll, 50 percent of you basically said I was right. The other 50 percent said either they were not sure or I was dead wrong but that playing in this town is hard. Playing for the New York Mets is maybe harder than any other team. Maybe the only the Jets, it might be harder. And there is a yoke around the neck of every one of these guys that put that uniform on. And you have no idea how they're going to respond to it. And a lot of times, their performance is the pressure that inherently comes with being part of this very difficult task of making the New York Mets a championship team. You heard in the second part of that clip, it was almost interesting that the same station that is trying to boost their ratings, trying to get forward with a new lineup of individuals, gave you two separate clips, one talking about the toxic clubhouse and the other one talking about the toxic fan base, where the first clip was stoking the flames of a fan base to make them toxic. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the guy talking about a toxic fan base is a guy that knows it because he was on the other side of it. And he does his own little part in that talk radio world. But you got to give Boomer Esiason credit. The guy knows. He was an elite quarterback for a while. Came here and didn't work out. Not going to get into Jets talk here. Not qualified to do it. Not going to do it. But for everybody to fall for the bait, or even debate toxic versus non-toxic, does Lakata know? Is Lakata in the clubhouse? is not in the clubhouse. I don't care if he works for s and You know, Mike Puma wrote a little bit. I mean, this is going to be something that everyone's going to go under the hood and look about, about the clubhouse. You know, Verlander's a diva. He doesn't like the analytics department for the Mets. Look, I haven't been impressed with the Mets analytics department either, to be quite honest. So maybe there's something there. You know Who's the unnamed source? There's been a lot. The one thing I will say, an organization that, by and large, from a front office perspective, has not been leaking. And even last year, a clubhouse that did not leak. The leaks have started to come. First with what we'll get into later, the commentary about Brett Beatty, number one. Now some of the commentary about the Verlander-Scherzer relationship, which I don't think any of that had anything to do with their performance here. Look, Scherzer hanging sliders has nothing to do with the fact that he hates Verlander, if that's even true. Verlander and the analytics department, did that play into his performance? Well, you know, maybe he was looking for some things. Look, the Astros revived Verlander, who was on the way out in 2017 and made him into maybe a better version than he's ever been, even when he was in his prime. So I can understand his affinity for that organization. And and, and there's got to be something to it because... It sounded like it was the only team he would go to when he waived his no trade clause. And inherently, when you create somewhat of a mercenary, put it together type of team, you know, the Mets are trying to do what the Florida Marlins did in 1997 you know, put these guys together to win a title while they were trying to compete and win while some of the farm system is coming up. There's always that fear that the Mercenaries come here, take the money, but aren't quite ready for what's in front of them. But toxicity had nothing to do with a a, a, a shoulder issue for Valander at all. You know, that's age. You know, I don't think toxicity has Starling Marty at a crossroads in his career where he had a serious surgery in the offseason and probably needed the year to get better. Probably shouldn't have come back so soon. Probably pushed himself. And I'm not sure that's the reason why Jeff McNeil is hitting 250 or that Brandon Nimmo has regressed offensively. Or that Daniel Vogelback, you know, can't at the side of the barn at times and shows no power. That Mark Canna was a lesser version of himself than he's ever been in his career. I don't think any of that has to do with that. There's all the walks from the pitching staff that have to do with toxicity. Did the closer blowing out his knee in a WBC match have something to do with toxicity? Drew Smith keeps giving up home runs. Don't think that has to do with toxicity. You know? I mean, the fact that the Mets pitching was thin in terms of depth, that's not toxicity. That's player development, to be honest with you. So, the real takeaway from everything this week when you talk about clubhouse, because I'm not going to get into that, this is going to be the rest of the year, people are going to try to flame stories because... It is August 13th, and if you're writing about baseball, you got another six freaking weeks of this to do your job. And I don't know anybody who wants to write about Danny Mendick giving up eight runs as a position player, relieving the ninth inning, which drives me bananas that the league has basically turned into slow-pitch softball when games are out of control. I don't understand it. I don't understand why pitchers, and I understand there was a doubleheader, and the Mets are short on pitchers, but the fact that you can't get somebody in to get three outs other than a position player to lob softballs. Cubs did it when the Mets were ahead earlier in the week. Drives me bananas. It's just not acceptable. It's not a good look for the game. That's the part of the game that has morphed into amateur hour. You know, Mets didn't have a position player pitch until 1992. It was 30 years in the in the league that it happens. Now it seems like every year they have somebody going out there and throwing some innings and blowouts. It drives me nuts. Sidebar and all that stuff. But, these are the kind of stories, stories about the fans with paper bags on their head, stories about, well, this is what went wrong, and that is what went wrong, and this guy's toxic, and that guy needs to be fired, and buck this, and Billy Epler that. And I promise you this, maybe some of this is going to come out in the wash, and we'll, we'll hear something when the season is, is over, but the bottom line is this, the Mets are in the position that they're in because they weren't good enough, and in particular, they were really bad during a tough stretch in June. I mean, really bad. 1962 Mets bad, 2023 Kansas City Royals bad, 2023 Oakland Athletics bad, bad. The Mets were just mediocre 500. We're not even talking about it. These might be meaningful games this weekend. And maybe Scherzer and Verlander are pitching. And maybe that lineup is more intact. And maybe the Atlanta Braves are, you know, certainly significantly ahead of the Mets because they already were. But I I look at the wild card and the Marlins and the Phillies and the Giants, and the bar's not that high for the Mets to compete. They could have snuck back in this thing. But the odds were long, and the road was hard, and they had two 40-something pitchers that, quite honestly, Billy Epler said they're probably nearing six-inning, three-run type of guys more than they are the former versions of themselves. And if I could get a hole, I'm going to do it. And he did. We'll see what the Gilberts and the Cliffords and the Acunas come out to be. Early signs are positive, but one guy's smashing it up in, in single A, high A, Brooklyn. The other two are in double A, Binghamton. Uh, you know, a little bit of ways from City Field. Ask Mark Vientos and Brett Beatty. But ultimately, the real rub here is that this is a hard city to play in. And it's getting hotter. And the business model of media is to incite and inflame you and anger you. It's that way in politics. It's that way in sports. It's that way in weather. Do you understand? I I turn on the news and every freaking rainstorm, it's the end of the world. I've never in my life experienced something like this. You would think that we have to take cover for every time a drop of rain comes down. Now, some of that has to do with different, you know, mediums of getting information now. The information that we didn't think about. You know, when I'm a kid, it rained. You know, you really didn't plan for it. It just, it happened because, you know, the weather was not as sophisticated. Now, it's, everything is a crisis. The world, do you understand the world ends every friggin' day on Twitter? Something. So, why would the sports world be any different? Because it's how they've come to build their business model. Part of that is they don't pay enough to get good people out there. So the days of the great writers from the 60s, the 70s, heck, even the 80s, the 90s, you're not gonna get those people anymore. Nobody can live on those salaries. Nobody. And then you got editors who are under pressure to produce clicks now on websites. So how do you do that? Drama. Worst team money can buy drama. I mean. I had to get off Twitter yesterday because to see members of the media spend their entire day at the ballpark making stupid jokes. It's just, why am I wasting my time? Do you really think I'm going to spend my day? And look, there's a there's a segment. Look, I love Barstool and the guys, but and Frank the Tank's been on the show, but at some point, that shtick gets old. That's one-dimensional. And do the Mets deserve scorn? Sure, they've been bad. I'm not sitting here saying everything's all right. But why don't we talk about maybe the plan here? You know, Ken Rosenthal will write a good piece about maybe what the Mets' plans are in free agency. We'll get into that. I don't know if we'll have time today, but we'll get into that. There's a lot to that. But instead of talking about why is there a toxic clubhouse, why is this? Why don't we talk about the challenge that's in front of any team in this town? Daniel Jones, Aaron Rodgers, Jalen Brunson. I mean, I couldn't even name someone on the Islanders, the Rangers, but you guys probably can. Cross town, the Yankees. All of a sudden, Brian Cashman's not that frumpy old. Oh, look how look at the victim Brian Cashman is. All of a sudden, there's some accountability there, huh? It's hard. Here's a team like the Yankees that should get pass after pass after pass, and has. But quite honestly, if you're a Yankees fan and and you're old enough to have the 96 and beyond experience. Do you have anything to be upset about? Honestly? Do you really? In the rest of my lifetime, I don't know if I'll see five championships for the New York Mets. And I'm betting I won't. I'm hoping to see a couple, but I'm betting I won't. If I had five since 1996, I'd shut up. And look, the Mets are at a point where they, and I've said this. And we talked about this with Mike Vaccaro, I've talked about this and 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 maybe this is something that I'm overplaying and I wouldn't be talking about this in at this level if they were in a, a some kind of race for something. But they're like 1940s Rangers level at this point. They are. You know, maybe not quite. You know, the Knicks are more like that than the Mets. But I mean, even look at the Rangers who I can. Now, I, I. I was alive. I remember all my friends in high school. I can now die in peace. Their parents. The Rangers won a Stanley Cup in 1994. 1994 is a long time ago. It's almost 30 years. It's a long time ago. It seems like yesterday. I remember that spring like yesterday. Knicks and Rangers. And now I look up. It's 30 years later. 30 years goes by. Bam. So I get it. But you know something? whining and moaning and complaining and every time someone comes to this town putting them through the beater ain't helping I'm not saying you need to be St. Louis and give everybody a standing ovation and I'm not going to expect more from the media I'm not going to expect intelligence discourse, intelligent discourse from the media they don't have it look, look at the analysis on the fan about baseball do any of them really put the time in that I do here And by the way, this ain't my primary gig, by the way. This ain't paying my mortgage. This ain't even paying my car bill. It's a nice night out for dinner. Maybe it pays an electrical bill here and there. And I'm very appreciative of the fact that anybody would pay me a dime. And you know what? I wouldn't charge you for this product because I don't believe in a subscription service for this because I believe you deserve this for free. It's my responsibility to put ads on here through the company I partnered with, ads that I don't control, by the way, in case before you start complaining about what ads are on there. I don't control it. I partnered with the fan side of people just to cover overhead, microphones and technology. And, you know, maybe once in a while, if I travel or buy something that's related to the show, that's what it pays for. I'm not getting rich here. So it's not my primary gig. But sports, dealing with one sport ain't hard. Dealing with many sports, it gets complicated. I did it for a little bit. It's hard but you have to be better. If your entire existence is hot take hot take hot take. I mean, and the and, and the thing I've said, and this is where it goes to the fan, you you're the customer. You have the power to change the channel. Right now, rather than listening to anything mainstream, do an audiobook. Listen to something that probably doesn't agitate you, cuz the world is not always ending. Not every opinion is right or wrong, left or right, up or down. That's what they want you to believe. So you know what's toxic? Probably not the Mets clubhouse. It's New York. It's the New York media. And by extension, it's the New York fan. And I think part of that is that there are people out there that are working hard. Their dollar's going a lot less. It's Oh, this has been the case since the beginning of time. There's a lot of money out there on a the field and in the pre- and in the owners box and it's really easy to be jealous and angry. But you know something guys? This then be- does not become a healthy hobby. It doesn't. Because now all the negativity that comes from your commute, from your job, from turning on the freaking news, now bleeds into the candy store. And when I was a kid, the candy store and sports was supposed to be an escape. Escape from reality. Two and a half hours of entertainment. That's why when teams go bad like the Mets have, it's probably better that you step away unless there's something that is interesting, like a prospect being called up or you know a big event, or maybe you enjoy seeing a player on the other team. But if you're going to spend the next six weeks absorbing, absorbing the trolling, being angered about the 4A lineups, which told you that was coming once they ripped the team apart, told you then go find something else to do I'll try to keep it better here but quite honestly the toxic is not the Mets clubhouse it's us and name me a team that goes bad that everybody's singing kumbaya in that clubhouse basically the same team as a year ago for the most part. And I read the article by Puma, you know, Bassett in the clubhouse, but you know, Tyler McGill and David Peterson, that fragile that the absence of the coffee clutch they had with Taiwan Walker and, and, and Bassett and, uh, and Scherzer, that they, that they took nothing away from those conversations. Maybe Scherzer should have became the pitching coach. And look, there's a lot of speculation that Scherzer's the league. Who knows? It could be Canna, it could be Fam, it could be Scherzer, it could be Verlander. I don't know who the media befriended. You know, maybe it's if it's somebody in that clubhouse, one of the things I would do if I had Billy Epler say, you know what, who's talking about Brett Beatty's development? Saying some pretty back-channel, deep-inside baseball information about him, if it's true, if it's not being lionized. So, I'm not here to talk about Toxic Mets Clubhouse. I don't believe a Toxic Mets Clubhouse unravel this season age injury underperformance lack of depth toxicity doesn't create any of that stuff i told you we're going into the season i didn't think they could win a division i thought they needed some work in there i thought they could play in the wild card because the bar is low because i figured they what did i say at the beginning the getting to know you phase that first 60 games might be rough but they're veterans they'll figure it out they didn't and June did them in that Braves series in Atlanta. Did them in, you know, losing with Scherzer and Verlander in that series and blowing leads in a fabulously bad way. That that pretty much did their season in. They tried to put it into second gear after that, but wasn't going to happen. So that's my message about all this. Listen to people like Salicata and Boomer Esiason, but understand what the problem is. The problem is you and me. Because at some point, we have to fairly assess what's in front of us. And there's a time for anger. And there's a time for understanding what's the situation. And the situation, quite honestly, is this team wasn't good enough. You could put any blame you want on anything. You want to believe it's Buck, it's toxic, it's this, it's that. That makes you feel better to be angry the rest of the year. The Mets aren't good enough. Their farm system wasn't deep enough. Their players were older. That team, I think Adam Adovino in that article hit it right on the head. They had their shot last year. There's a show. Go back and listen. Around this time last year, right after they took four out of five from the Braves, is this the Mets' best shot? I talked about it. And I had my gut told me that everything was coming together. And they didn't win. They lost to San Diego. They lost the division to Atlanta. Sometimes that happens. So now they retreat. We'll see what next year brings. Ken Rosenthal wrote a great article about perhaps the strategy that he understands to be, and we will have a chance to talk about that throughout the next couple of weeks because I have my thoughts. Might include putting together a super rotation with the Far East, maybe all you know, three fifths Otani, Yamamoto, and Singa—a Japanese rotation, guys from another country who are coming here and you know taking on everything, including culture. Maybe that's what it'll take. You know, give Seng a lot of credit. I was the biggest skeptic of him. He came here, new country, new baseball, new food, away from home, doesn't speak the language. And he's the only one who seems like to be unaffected by all this BS and garbage. Had a pretty good year. Exceeded my expectations. Maybe one of the only ones on there. Maybe Tommy Pham was the other one. He's not even here anymore. And now he's having trouble seeing the baseball, apparently, out in Arizona. So he has a very serious eye issue, and I feel for him on that. That's, That's unfortunate. So that's what I got to say about toxicity and clubhouse and chemistry. When I say you're the problem and I'm the problem, I'm not saying that we're causing things here, but we're not helping things. If you're always going to be waiting for the other shoe to drop, Charlie Brown, it's going to freaking drop. I've told you this. I saw the energy in that ballpark during the playoffs. It's the old, um, you know, rosary bead crowd. The novena crowd, I call it. Praying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my... Well, guys, guess what? That energy, you don't believe it? Read a little bit of energy. That's going down on a field. That don't help matters. I almost rather than the Mets play 162 games on the road sometimes. I bet you they, they would be, do better. They really would. Because at least there they expect to the negativity. At home, it's almost like sometimes it's a road game. It's been like that for a while. Been like that for a while. In big spots. It ebbs and flows, but in big spots. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When I come back, Brett Beatty was sent down. Will we see him again this year? And what's the future for Brett Beatty? I got a lot of questions about that. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this.
0: Andy, what went into the decision to send down Beatty?
1: Well, they just thought, talking to Mets people, that Beatty just wasn't at his best self and he needed to time out. He needed to recover some confidence. When he came up here, Brett Beatty has swagger at his best in the most positive way, I think. He's a nice, down-to-earth guy. But he carries himself with a lot of confidence, and they felt that he lost that confidence. And I'm not just talking about body language or the clubhouse. I'm talking about the Mets thought maybe if there's a veteran pitcher on the mound and Beatty has a chance to barehand a ball and throw it to first, he doesn't. He puts it in his pocket. And then when he decides to throw a ball, maybe that wasn't the right moment to do it. So the decisions are kind of off. They felt that he wasn't really firing at the plate on pitches, that he, he should have been more aggressive on. And it's like this is not Brett Beatty. So what he seemed to need was just a step back, Go remember that you're a really good uh, baseball player on the offensive side and a developing one on the defensive side. And just, just take a beat and relax. They gave him some objectives offensively and defensively, and if he hits those, he'll be back pretty soon. You no know, guarantees with these things, but it could be a short demotion, and they just thought he needed, it. like I said, a timeout. Yeah, he's going to have to prove it here eventually. But I I don't really mind him being sent down because I think you guys are right. I think you can see the loss of confidence. It actually reminds me a little bit of what Conforto went through, you know, guy with a really good swing and just kind of you can see when he lost his confidence, didn't look the same at the plate. Or in field. I don't think he's a terrible third baseman. I think he's lost some confidence there as well. So you let him go down there. He dominated AAA earlier in the year. You figure he'll go down there and hit the ball well down there. And then, and then you bring him back because you're, you're right. He's got to prove it up here at some point. And I, I still think he will. I think he can be a good player. But, he, I mean, when a guy loses his confidence as badly as he has, I mean, there's nothing there. You can see it. All
2: right, we're back. Brett Beatty. So Brett Beatty was sent down to Syracuse this week. He promptly has gone there and hit a couple of home runs and looked like the top-notch third-base prospect that the Mets thought they had. Uh, Because, quite honestly, if he's not going to hit at Syracuse, then I got to tell you, I don't know when Brett Beatty will hit. But this is a big part of the Mets, not only in 2024 and beyond. They have to figure out what they have here. And... And I'm all for players struggling and not getting it and, and and things like that. Because, look, there's a lot of players that we can, you know, talk about that have had struggles. I mean, just recently somebody pointed out that Aaron Judge, great point, came here and, you know, struck out 50% of the time, age 24 season in his, you know, uh, first big league run. Hit a buck 79 and then he became the player that he is now, you know, Probably the best player in the game and MVP and the guy who got the big contract. Alec Bum um, had a decent pandemic season, but then his first full season in Philadelphia struggled, similar to Beatty. Struggled, didn't show a lot of power. Struggled defensively. You know, you guys will remember early last season. You know, I hated here when he made an error, and now he's a pretty solid, not a All Star, solid third baseman, and uh, he plays a little first too, but. You know, a guy with a a 111 OPS plus, 774 OPS, some pop, valuable in a lineup. If Brett Beatty turns into that, he's not an all-star. He's a solid player that plays a couple of positions. I could live with that. It's disappointing, but I could live with that. You know, people bring up Michael Conforto getting sent down. All due respect, Michael Conforto was a big part of the 2015 Mets run to the World Series. Hit it in the World Series against elite pitching. Had a bad spell after a hot start in 2016. Got sent down. Was back up and was right back on the horse before he hurt his shoulder the following year and has been, uh, you know, not having a great year coming back from his shoulder issue, but a serviceable offensive player out in San Francisco. I mean, he's got a career OPS of 8.13, 121 OPS plus. That's a good player. but Beatty's nowhere near that. Austin Riley struggled as well at 22 years old, struck out a ton, just like Beatty, who's striking out 30% of the time, and now he's a perennial. You know, top third baseman, you know, with power, big, big clutch hitter. And, I mean, you know, everybody talks about these guys. Says, well, Mike, you're being hard on Brett Beatty because, you know, he's only 23 years old. Well, he's going to be 24 in November. That's not really young. He looks utterly lost at the plate right now. He is unacceptably bad. I mean, he's not... Anywhere near acceptable as a third baseman. You know, for a while there, you know, I heard what Eric Chavez said in spring training. You know, think about this. He's 23 years old, he's been in the minor leagues. And late in spring training, you know, the aha moment where Brett Beatty was, well, look how much time I have at third base to make a play. Now, you guys could say, hey, that's on player development. Yeah, maybe. But sometimes development, not sometimes, all the time, is about the player. It's about their accountability. It's about how they process information. And I personally think Brett Beatty someone that comes across as somebody that takes a long time to learn. But here we are late in spring training, the guy struggles defensively, and he's getting this aha moment at age of 23 before opening day. I'm like, okay, I hear that. I'm like, all right, well, maybe something clicked. Maybe Chavez, who was a third baseman and has talked about some of the early struggles he had in his career defensively. And he turned out to be a good defensive and good offensive player. And now he comes up and, you know, he struggles against left-handed pitching. I, I understand that. That that that's not that's not uncommon for young for any young left-handed hitter. Um, but I mean he's got an OPA. he's hitting 130 in the second half. 130. Automatic out. Awful, atrocious. And now this article comes out by Mike Puma, which basically talks about the fact that Brett Beatty Is learning here at the age of 23 something that he should have known, and if nobody told him, shame on him, but it's baseball 101 that in the best, highest level of the sport in the world, you can't take any pitches or time off that you need 110% focus all the time. Think about that. He's learning that right now. It's in the article. Now there's a source that's talking about it. So, What's the agenda? Why are they letting that out there? Are they frustrated about it? Is that a way to kick baby in the you-know-what? But look, think about that. Now, people say, well, maybe he needs ADHD medications. I- I'm not getting into that. I don't know the guy's medical history. It's none of my business. You know, if that's what's going to solve it, God bless him. Go get it. I think you have to get some kind of um, exemption for that because it could fall into the whole steroid uh you know, failed test type of thing. I think that that's part of that. I don't know. I don't care. That's not the point of this segment. But when I read a quote, you're under a microscope up here, so you have have got to be engaged from pitch one to the end of the game, Beatty said. That is something I have to get, got to work on and something I've got to learn. So I'm going to do my best at it. Well, big guy, that to me is controllable. Maybe you can't always hit a great left-handed pitcher, Maybe a line drive finds an outfielder's glove. Maybe there are things that are just out of your control. You hit a line drive right at somebody. There's a lot of stuff in this world you can't control. Once you hit that ball, Derek Derek Jeter said it, hit the ball well, and after that, not much I can do. He was right. He said something to that effect. But I damn well know you can control focus because that's on you. And there's no coach and there's no you know analytics department that's going to give that to you. Is there medication that could do it? Sure, but before we start shoving pills down his throat, better make sure that that's part of the equation and not just an excuse. Easy to say, let's just give him a, a magic pill. We don't know that. It's not our. That's not something we can speculate, nor will I. And I've heard nothing but good things about this kid from people who would know. Professional, he's going to be... Great makeup, going to be the Mets third baseman for a decade. I've heard it. People that I respect. And I'm hoping that that's the case because he's hit at every minor league level. And let's be fair, Beatty's a victim that here he is, 19 years old, having his first season in Brooklyn, you know, towards the end of the year after beating a rookie ball, and then the pandemic hits. And all these guys, I think what you're seeing now with all these prospects, the dearth of a pipeline, not just for the Mets, But for other teams, is that you have a number of guys like Brett Beatty in the position that he's in that lost a full year of development right out of the gate where they couldn't do anything because of the pandemic, because of COVID in 2020. And that could be a... There are going to be players that are never going to recover from that, ever. And that's going to be a shame. That's part of life. That was not their fault. It happened. But it might be an obstacle and... Something that, you know, may delay their big league careers. Maybe they never get on track. Maybe organizations change their opinion of these players. Maybe they change their development plan on them. I mean, one of the things that I worry about, even with a Brett Beatty, because we heard Bill Pulsiver talk about it a couple of weeks ago, and we know that teams, especially now, because everybody wants to be the smartest person in the room, you know, whether it's a coach or an analytics member of the front office or whatever, they want to change People, you know, look at what Pulsifer said. This is back in the 90s when analytics wasn't necessarily something that anybody thought about, how they were changing the way he went about his craft, the same craft and the same process that got him to be one of the top prospects in baseball. Teams are good at that. Mets are no exception. And I've questioned their player development, especially on the pitching side. I'm not here to say that the all hope is lost, but let's face it, you know, we haven't seen, you know, we've seen some good prospects like Alonzo McNeil, Nimmo, took Nimmo some time. He I mean, took Nimmo some time to develop himself, but he did. But there's been a lot of misses on the Mets. I mean, let's let's look at Brandon Nimmo real quick. Brandon Nimmo. You know, first year in the big leagues, 666 OPS+. Plus. Next year he was, you know, off the bench, 115 OPS+. plus. Then all of a sudden he gets, you know, 2018, he becomes a regular in... He becomes an elite run creator. And, uh, you know, despite what we've seen this year, which maybe there's been some Nixon and injuries that have impacted him, you know, he's still been pretty good. Not, not, not a little bit of a regression, but he's been pretty good. But to hang your hat right now on Brett Baby to guarantee that he, first of all, he doesn't get any uh, leg up in a positional battle at third base. I mean, they're talking about putting Jeff McNeil at third base and moving the kid to the outfield. I mean, even if he figures out the offense, let's say he becomes Austin Riley at third base, his third base defense is not acceptable. He'll have a two run homer and he'll give away three runs with his defense. I mean, his defense is so bad. I mean, look, I can't, the, the level of offense that Brett Beatty has has to produce at his current defensive capabilities is so high, it's at least the Austin Riley level that I just can't see. I mean, unless I'm missing something, I don't see him being able to be the offensive player that he needs to be to make up for that bad defense. Now, players get better. There's always a chance to get better. Howard Johnson wasn't a great third baseman, but he made the plays and he got a little bit better as time went on. You know? Michael Conforto had the knock that he couldn't play defense when he was drafted, and he turned out to be a pretty good defensive player. Good arm. I don't know. I haven't watched enough of him this year to know whether or not how he's regressed or whatever. But what really bothers me about the Brett Beatty narrative, and I, you heard John Harper and you heard uh, Martino. Well, you know, he's a kid that shows a lot of confidence and needs a little blow. I, I don't know if I believe that. And with that article, if any of that stuff, and some of that's quotes from Beatty. Some of that's quotes from Beatty. It's not like it's an unnamed source. That doesn't reek of a confident guy. Guys who don't have focus and are learning all that stuff, that's not confidence. That's not, you know, confident guys, focused, ready to go, understands what needs to be done. You know. I mean, you want to you want to do the conspiracy theory? Maybe they sent him down because they know he's going to stink up the joints so let's get another year of service time so we don't have to get throughout the six years of control just the bad times. You want to get some a little bit more of the good times. Yeah, maybe that's that's something that is playing into it. Possible. It's possible. But what about Brett Beatty has any of you seen since the minute, other than the fact he had a home run in his first at-bat? What have you seen that says that's the Mets starting first base, uh, third base for a decade? I mean, David Wright was already uh, entrenched at his age. I know that that's a guy who was on a Hall of Fame trajectory before his injury. Same thing with Jose Reyes. I brought up Conforto, not a Hall of Famer. Guy that had one small blip and got sent down. One small blip. And a lot of that, you know, might that might have been mental. And he went down, corrected himself, and he was fine after that. I mean, injuries are probably more of his issue than, than anything else, the shoulder issues. And who knows how much of that, you know, he hurt his shoulder the following year. Who knows how much of that was his shoulder? You don't know. He never made excuses. But... You know, everybody, oh, he's young. No, he's not. When he was 19, he's young. It's 2024. He's five years into this thing. Guys guys who are elite players are starting to figure it out at 24. Now, Aaron Judge did it at 25. You know, he's a little bit older. And maybe, maybe I need to, you know, heed my own words and say the kid lost a year of development because of COVID. So maybe 23 is really 22 or 21. Okay, I'll buy it. But right now, to sit and look at the baby Mets and say that other than Alvarez, any of these guys could contribute at any level, next year would be foolhardy. Vientos, I know he's got like 100 at-bats in the big leagues, but what's there? Not, I mean, Buck said he's made improvements defensively. That's good to hear. But he's not exactly stinging the ball. I mean, at the very least, he should be hitting left handed pitching and hitting, you know, bad pitching at the big league level. You don't see that. Beatty, you got what you got there. You know, and and we always assume because the Mets have been blessed in the last 10 or 15 years where top prospects came up and performed. Right. Reyes. Ike Davis before he had that injury. Alonzo. McNeil. You know, they've had Nimmo. They've had some good fortune. There are guys, like, that don't make it. That flame out. That never make it. You know, guys like Randy Milligan, if you want to go back to top prospects the Mets had. Sean Abner. Herm Winningham. Look at some of the guys they gave up for Gary Carter. Those were top prospects. They never panned out. You know, everybody thinks everybody's going to be Greg Jeffries. You know, Greg Jeffries had a good career. Maybe he didn't work out here, but he had a good career. Maybe he wasn't what they thought he would be, but he was a good hitter. You know, not everybody's David Wright. But at this point, give me Alec Baum. Boom, Bomb, Bomb, Boom. Give it to me. I'll take that offense. In a as a component player in a better lineup, you know what they're what he's been advertised as is a is a core offensive piece right there with with Alvarez. Now they're talking about moving him to the outfield. His stick better be a hell of a lot better than what Alec Baum is doing. It's 770 OPS. And he better be a decent outfielder. I mean, there's a whole lot of red flags with Brett Baby, And I hope I'm wrong. And I'm not rooting against him. I know you guys all say on Twitter, I'm rooting. I'm not rooting against him. I'm just telling you, I don't see it. And look, I was wrong about Senga. I was wrong about Alvarez. Alvarez has worked his tail off. When a Hall of Famer like Max Scherzer gives you the kudos that he gave Alvarez earlier in the year, that's a, that tells you a lot. So don't be putting in pen Brett Beatty as your third baseman or your left fielder or anything on the big league roster because I haven't seen it. I've heard good things. You constantly hear good things, but the results are the results are the results, and I don't see any of the good things In a small sample size that everybody's talked about. And I think the next 12 to 15 months in Brett Beatty's career are huge. Because if he goes and comes into spring training and doesn't hit in spring training and looks awful in the field, wherever that may be, and he starts next year in Syracuse, that 4A moniker. I mean, this has Dom Smith written all over it. At least Dom Smith had a good 60 games during a BS season in a truncated schedule that wasn't a real schedule was a East Coast schedule. In front of no fans, mind you. With no travel. And, and a focus. You know, remember, COVID gave players the ability to focus on nothing but their craft because they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't do anything. That matters. That changes outcomes. A lot. So, not here to rag on Brett Beatty. Not surprised they sent them down. I think that's the right thing to do. We'll probably see him sometime in September when the minor league season is over. But be curious, you know, and remember something. Don't believe what your eyes tell you in September and March. It's not a bad thing if he starts hitting. But doing it in extended garbage time, I need to see a lot more. And and that will be him showing in pressure situations when games matter for a team that's good that he could perform on both sides of the ball, which he has yet to do. One iota in the up and down that he's had since August of last year. So that's what I have to say about Brady. All right, let's take a quick break. We're going to wrap up. When we come back, non-Mets-related topic that we'll end up with. It's pertinent to how I started off about the toxic media. The Orioles suspend their broadcaster. Gary Cohn had a lot of things to say about it. You shouldn't be surprised that teams are starting to be Uh, well, I guess their own little PR arm, the media of these teams, the desires for the make them become their own PR arm. It's where we are in the world today. I think part of it is the way media is covering teams. And don't be surprised if this is becoming more and more part of the, uh, the conversation in our culture. We'll be back with that and more right after this. When
0: I heard and read about it, Jeremy, I thought it was. A, either a joke, or B, there had to be something much more insidious behind the suspension. Uh, And now that I realize that uh, it had almost everything to do with apparently what was said about Tampa Bay and playing uh, the Rays and having a lot of success recently when they had none in the last three years, uh, I agree there should be a suspension here. They should suspend the doofus that suspended Kevin Brown. During a recent game at Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Kevin, during his opening, talked about how the Orioles had had trouble winning in the past at Tropicana Field, but that they were doing better this year. That was really all he said. And for that, the Baltimore Orioles management decided to suspend Kevin Brown. Let me just say one thing to Baltimore Orioles management. You draped yourself in humiliation when you fired John Miller, and you're doing it again. And if you don't want Kevin Brown, there are 29 other teams who do. It's a horrendous decision by the Orioles. I don't know what they were thinking, but they've gotten exactly the reaction that they deserve. And it's just a shame because the Orioles are playing so well, and now they've diverted attention from that and now made themselves a laughingstock.
2: All right, we're back. Final thoughts. So you heard Gary Cohen, you heard the great Al Michaels talk about the suspension of Kevin Brown, Orioles broadcaster. And I got to tell you, when I heard Kevin Brown was suspended and I saw the clip, I was waiting for the punchline. I'm like, okay, they must have, he must have said something sexist. He must have said something homophobic. He must have said something racist. I'm like, there's got to be something here. I mean, that's the way this goes, right? I mean, they, people just, they're dumb. Like, They say things that come out of their mouth that you're like, how can you say that? Like, forget about today's society, how sensitive we are. People have said things that I'm like, just from a common decency, from proper being in a public conversation. You don't say those things. You shouldn't even think some of them. But, you know, private thoughts are private thoughts. I'm not going to get into that. And then I hear he said, well, the Orioles haven't been really good at Tropicana Field and the Rays have beaten them up. And I'm like, the graphic said the same thing. And then he gets suspended and I'm And then, you know, obviously the fallout, the Orioles, the Orioles are sensitive. They're a poorly run club under the Angelos family, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I started to think about where we're at with the media. And I think there's a couple of different things when it comes to the professional sports teams that to respond to a new world of social media, as I said in the beginning, is toxic is built on toxicity, is built on creating a toxic narrative to generate clicks because unfortunately, what I've been told is that the mainstream fan doesn't like smart or intelligent or education. And the only way to generate views is the lowest common denominator. And look, go on Instagram, go on Facebook, look at what sells. It is the bro factor. It is... You know, you know, I think my, I was talking with my wife who's who's on Instagram and into pets. And she's like, how is it that someone getting their dog high gets, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of likes and which is wrong. And, you know, somebody doing good work to help animals or help people. You know, they get no likes, so they get no views. Is it the algorithm? I said, well, maybe, but it also is us, us as consumers that don't necessarily take the time to want to see that stuff. We like a good laugh. And at some point, you know, we we as a culture maybe have got to be better. So by playing into this toxicity, into whole, you know, again, I'm going to go back. We are the consumers. We have the power of the dollar. We have the ability to elicit change despite what we think and say. Because ultimately, if we don't listen, it doesn't happen. And, and, I, and, and I'm at fault here because I, I gave air – to WFAN earlier, but I think they were really important clips and important points to a point that I was making on the show. But teams have decided that, hey, if I can't get fair coverage and the toxic environment around me is inevitable, then I need to pull back the control. And at the very least, the people that work for me, if they're not going to put pom-poms in their hands... At the very least, they're going to spin everything like the best PR maven out there and make sure everything is positive to that viewer. Somehow, like, they're indoctrinating a whole generation of fans. And I do laugh that guys like Michael K., who are as sensitive... I mean, one day I'll tell you the story about Michael K. and the bet. Those who've watched me for a long time know I made a bet with Michael K. many years ago. We had it public on Twitter. I might still have the the screen grabs. I don't know. But, um... He's blocked me since. And, you know, that's a guy that's about as sensitive as it can be. And works for a network, yes, that did its own share of spinning. Not to the level what happened to Kevin Brown and the Orioles. But I think you have a generation of fans that are being fed toxic behavior because that's what sells. They knowingly or unknowingly pushing it down. You got teams now that have younger you know, social media experts that like, hey, we could spin this. Like, everybody thinks, I love you Go on LinkedIn, you go on, on Facebook, you go on Instagram. Everybody's like, hey, I could make you this, and I could do that, I got the answer to this. So guys, it's not that complicated. Look, if you're intelligent, and you read, and you take a step back, and you put your emotions aside, I don't care what level of education you have, you could decipher BS from real pretty quickly. This PR stuff, these fancy, you know, memos. All they are, are political points to protect you from the mob. That's it. That's it. That's it. There's a group of people that wake up every morning, a segment of our society in sports, culture, life, that all they wake up trying to gotcha. Well, that's all they get off on a gotcha. And now you have a phone with a camera and you have you know, Instagram and Facebook, and all they want to do is, gotcha, I gotcha, and let's tar and feather that person, and we're going to improve society just by being angry all the time. And guess what? They're the losers in it because they're always angry. So in a lot of ways, the team is wrong, but we are creating, and we're actually going to flush, and we really have. The reason a show like this even exists and gets the attention it gets is that the product in the mainstream is so bad at times and lacks so much depth and is either too vanilla or too ignorant that I actually could exist. I should be choked out. There should be someone on SNY doing what I do. There should be someone on every network doing what I do for every team because this ain't hard. I am not the smartest guy in the room. I think I've got a, a, a unique perspective I think some of my training in business helps me here communicate with you. You know, I do think I have a little bit of talent, but you know, I laugh when people say, "Oh, this radio person is so talented." You know, yeah, there's radio people and there's non-radio people, but if you're in a, any environment where you communicate with people in any walk of life and any business you could do radio. You got to organize yourself and you got to get the flow and you got to practice, but you could do radio. This ain't the hardest thing. You don't need to go to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting to do radio. Trust me. You can learn a few pointers on form. But those are like, you know, it's the difference between taking a three-credit class and taking, you know, a four-year degree. Most of the time, the three-credit class, if you're smart enough, you, you can get away with it. Now, of course, we have technology and the internet and different formats that go out there and, and help us. And truthfully, growing up in an environment where radio and talk radio it was born and exploded as a young person helped me quite a bit. With real And look, Back then there was a lot of gossip and there was, you know, I always, I talked about it, how he rose when we talked about him being inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame. He was as hard on the Mets as anybody, but he wasn't toxic. He was honest and he was fair. He was fair. I mean, think about how far we've come with this whole Kevin Brown suspension thing. That Davey Johnson used to take calls from fans who would call him and question his moves in game on the air to a point where managers are in this scrum, organized dais, get thrown softball questions because members of the media either are too lazy or afraid to have their access revoked. And it is a partnership. Look, covering a team's a partnership. You have to do some sales uh, work there because you know what? You go after certain people, they're going to shut down on you, that ain't going to help you. But it's a give and a take. And if you communicate and you're honest and you're fair, I think unless you're a real thin-skinned jerk as an athlete and they're out there, you'll be you'll be fine because you if you're honest say, hey look I I need to present this part of the conversation and as long as you present the other side and you're not just trying to go after someone for clicks but what's gonna happen is teams and I think Mark Cuban even talked about this in terms of his organization they're gonna bring all this stuff in-house and they're gonna feed you the content that you want the vanilla MLb.com Q a basic stuff maybe this that it's like going to the doctor you know what media with teams is going to be? It's like going to the doctor saying I have this ailment. Like, well, it could be this, it could be that, it may be this, it may be that. And and I'm sure you've experienced that. You sit there, and you go, okay. So basically, you're telling me a bunch of things, and you're asking me to decide which path I want to go. I I knew that. I'm going to you, the expert. Well, you know, everybody's afraid to make a decision, or they're not good enough to make a decision. That's what's going to be. Well, here's a. Here's B. You decide. No. That's not what I do. I give you both sides. I try to go balance down the middle, but I also tell you, hey, here's where I think this is going, and I also try to get the BS meter out. I say this is BS. This is garbage. This is baloney. So we're creating this by the media not being better. By the you know when I hear people say, and they're again they're right that you can't do what I do. Like, have a show with Ernie Dove and talk about the farm system and the way that Ernie did and gave us a lot of inside baseball as to why things were the way they are. Go back and listen to that from a few weeks ago. I think that was right around the deadline or right before the deadline. Because it's too inside baseball for the mainstream. Well, then you know what? If that's how you are as a fan, then you're just going to be the guy that's going to get the article where they talk about the people in the stands with the paper bags on their head. Because to me, that doesn't interest me. If you're going to go to a ballpark and be negative and spend the whole time yelling and screaming and being angry, uh, go there and enjoy the food. Take your kid to the game and, and you show them nuances of the game. You know, have them look at a Kuna out there in the outfield and show them what you think the Mets need. Like that's learning about the game. Like, this other stuff I don't get, like you know I'm all for comedy and laugh and and, and look I'm the biggest guy that I love to watch. I mean one of my favorite sitcoms is The Office, which is mocking office lifestyle. But there's a time like not everything is that. That's that's not reality. It's just really sad and disappointing. And look, I see the success. Look, look Portnoy over here at Barstool buys back, you know Barstool, fabulously successful. And I give Portnoy, I mean, he had an idea and he's one of the few that have executed at a level that many of us will never see in this business. Guys like him, Bill Simmons, whatever, you know, did a ton for small business during the pandemic. Portnoy did more for small business during the pandemic than government. And that's the truth. But I got to be honest, some of the content I look at, I'm like, huh, I don't get it. And I'm not a, a tight, you know what? I think I'm a fun guy. I mean, I may take my you know things a little more seriously. I try to be professional, you know. I I just think I'm different. Like I can't be that. If I came on and I tried to be talking Mets version of Barstool, it's it's insincere. Like you got guys that do that, and sometimes comedy is good. But when everybody tries to do that, that that that's like taking the comedy show in every genre within your Netflix viewing or Hulu, whatever is like that. Like that's not. Like, there's a time and a place for that. You have to have the mindset and you you get out of reality for that stuff. So, maybe I'm making a loose connection here, but I think what you saw with the Orioles and Kevin Brown was that teams are at a point where anything... It's like when you have one reaction, you have the polar opposite reaction to balance it out. They're trying to swing things so far to the other way that it's, it's ludicrous. Poor guy. I feel bad for the guy. I mean... If there is an example of why this business, media, is so hard to be in and so hard to make a living and so dangerous to put all your eggs in that basket, it's like you, if you could get suspended for what Kevin Brown got suspended in Baltimore, and don't for a minute think the Orioles would be the only team. They're probably the stupidest team, and maybe that was the most ludicrous reason, but there are other teams that have probably had internal production meetings that say, hey, don't go here, don't go there. And that's why you got to respect SNY, and you got to respect Gary, Keith, and Ron. And you got to respect, you know, despite the fact that you guys hate the, the Wolf Pond, still own the network, but it's not affiliated with the team anymore. So now they could even go harder after the team. That even when SNY was affiliated with the ownership of the team, they never went the route where I felt it was. You know, I used to make the joke. It was Bob Raceman at the Daily News used, used to make. It was Bob Raisman that came up with it. He used to call uh, the YES Network Al Jazeera out of the old Al Jazeera that you know back in the day where it was like you know they would they would report whatever they wanted you to hear even though it wasn't real. So he called it Ali Yang Zira, which maybe is politically incorrect, certainly by today's standards. And I'll probably get yelled at for saying that, but that's a Bob Raisman. I mean, anybody who, who read Raisman's columns knew that he had quite a sense of humor. So we are in odd times, people. We are in odd times. And the fact that there's no meaningful baseball in Flushing is going to enhance all that we've seen and heard on the media front, I told you this was going to get ugly, but here's the commitment I have to you I'm going to try really, really hard to stay out of that, I'm not going to make this a topic every week Um, I think there are some things that we're going to try to look into over the next couple of weeks I'm trying to look at, you know, some baseball books out there, trying to get some former Mets on the show Uh, I think Ken Roosevelt had a great column in The Athletic talking about the Mets focus in 2024, and I think I want to build that out, I think that's something we're going to do next week build that out hey, what does what Cohen wrote to the season ticket holders, what does competitive baseball look like, and how does that line up with this 2025-2026 time frame? Here we go again. I mean, I remember when the Mets were rebuilding on the Sandy Alderson. Well, 2016 is the date. 2015 is the date. There is no date. Sometimes you're early. Sometimes you're late. Sometimes it never comes. You develop prospects, and they develop based on themselves and you, and it happens. The quicker it happens is, is – how quickly you get good ball players. There's not a clock that strikes midnight. And says up, oh, it's your time, Brett Beatty. You're on up. No, Brett Beatty may never hit midnight, as we talked about earlier. Hopefully he does, but he may never. So, anyway, that's my. I'm mean, saucy today, right? A little sauce. Anyway, uh, that's the latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Um, we'll be back, of course, next week. Enjoy the game tonight. I know you guys might be watching Sunday night baseball, Mets and Braves. I'm sure that'll be brutal with ESPN. Using it as a pulpit to say how bad the Mets are, because that's what we want to hear for two and a half hours how bad the Mets are, as if we don't know that. The whole season has been bad. You know, we really haven't had good feeling about the Mets since Atlanta last September. So there you go. So all right, you can check me out all the time at the Talking Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can show an Apple Podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, talking metspodcast.com. nuji. No Mike Silat, talkingmetspodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, Mets, No g. And I want to thank the good folks at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network for supporting this show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.